Then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, who is he and where is he? Who would presume to do this? And before I get to verse six, just think about this, right? Do you remember when Nathan confronted David in his sin? And Nathan tells this big story and David's like, where is he? Bring him to me. We'll kill him. And Nathan says, you are that man. Esther is getting ready to drop a bomb because the person she's going to name is at the banquet table with her. In fact, his name is Haman. Let's read in verse 6. Esther said, a foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. And you can almost see her going like this, like in a courtroom. That's the guilty guy. Sorry, welcome for your first time here. We love you still. Welcome to Cross Train. Then Haman became terrified before the king and queen. Think about this for a second. So they're having this banquet. You already know, the reason I set up the foundation of Queen Vashi having a separate banquet with the women, right? Women were not given a place where they could just have discourse with people, certainly not with the king, certainly not to make a demand like this of the king. And she doesn't just make the demand, right? She nails the guy who's responsible for this plot and then points out like three chairs to the left, that old boy right there, right? So what does the king do? In verse 7, the king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw the harm that had been determined against him by the king. Now remember, Esther's conviction was a very real thing, and she used her conviction to stand up for her people. And that influence, look at what just happened in verse 7. I'm going to read this again. The king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. So the king, who asked Esther, well, who is this? Who is this guy? Esther says, it's that guy right there. He, I don't know what to do. I'm going to keep drinking, and I'm going to go to the garden and think about this, right? What does Haman do? Think about who actually was holding the influence here. He begs for his life. If it was me, uh, maybe you guys can relate to this. If it was me, the guy who could say, kill him, I'd be chasing him. King, she's wrong, she's a girl, whatever it could be that you come up, right? No, 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 no. Because Haman recognized who had the power. He starts begging from the queen, recognizing that you are that bold to stand up, then you're going to be that bold to save me. Because he recognized that the influence that Esther had was shaping events in the palace, which, of course, was shaping events in the world. In verse 8... Now, when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were still drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was begging. And then the king said, imagine this picture, right? Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And so that's an interesting turn of phrase. Those words sentenced his death right there for him. And if you remember, there was a scene from, a, uh, from Genesis, right, when Joseph Potiphar's wife the, the assumption that you would make that kind of move to the queen, you're done. As my son Luke would say, you're done. You're done. Serve him up. He's done. Esther held on to her convictions. And that influence that she had because people recognized her as a woman of faith, let her talk to the king. The king was moved to action. And so now, in verse 10, this would-be killer of God's people now is going to end up being killed in his sin in verse 10. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. I will tell you this. I, I don't have, and for the sake of time, 
I don't have a super long time to explain this dichotomy between why Haman hated Mordecai. But let me give you a couple things that I hope really put a, a pebble in your shoe, as we say in Foundations, to get you to want to study some more. All right? So Haman, Haman, Haman's history, generationally, there was this tribal feud. Okay? Do you remember Saul when he was appointed king? Before David, Saul was appointed king. And there was a time when Samuel appointed him king that he said, okay, go out and you're going to destroy the Amalekites. There was that story in 1 Samuel, right? And then Saul, he goes out and he, he destroys almost all of them, remember? And he, he doesn't kill King Agag. And he gets the sheep and he has the choicest uh, property. And Samuel's like, for what you've done, right? 1 Samuel 15, 7, he's like, the Lord wants obedience rather than sacrifice. That's what he says, right? And so, the, so Agag, then Samuel is the one who kills Agag. Do you know who Haman is? He is a direct descendant of Agag. So, so when you start looking at this, you go, wait, wait, wait. Okay, Jeff, that's really super cool. Well, let me tell you, well, that's super cool. You know who Mordecai was? A Benjamite. You know who Saul was? A Benjamite. Mordecai is related generationally to Saul, Haman is related generationally to Agag. You wonder why there's some conflict? And I'm telling you, you guys look around world events nowadays, and if I had, so if my sweet wife and I, if we had a problem, right, we try to believe that, you know, we're not going to let the sun go down on our anger, you know, those kind of things, and we try to reconcile right away, and maybe, maybe she and I are mad at each other for a day or two, but we eventually recognize that I'm sure it's my fault, and we just move on from that. But you think about this. Look at world events. You wonder, you wonder why every single, every single like Middle East plan that's been put out has not been successful. It's because we're looking with shallow eyes. It's like when Abraham and Lot, and Abraham says, take whatever you want, and Lot looks over. He, Lot should have looked up higher and seen God's plan. This is a generational problem that's not going to be solved with a couple people in a room over some wine. And he hated him. Haman hated Mordecai. He hated everything about the Jews. Hated them. Because he knew his history, which was passed down, and said, these are the people that killed your fathers. So as you, as you look back now on Esther, can you understand why there are some problems? It really brought the text alive to me when I started studying that. So we see Esther in her conviction and her influence. But let's look at what Jesus did as the bride influencing the body of Christ. In John 13, and I'm not going to read all this, it's John 13, make a note, verses 31 through 35. Let me just summarize. Jesus, his influence, right? We already know about his conviction. We know about his foundation, about why God brought him into the world. But in John 13, Jesus explains to his disciples, think about his influence, was really keyed into his disciples. He explained his role, and he gave them a new commandment in verse 35, by this all men will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Verse 35. So Jesus' life drew the apostles to give up on everything in the world to both magnify and glorify him so that they could bring his truth to other people. And that's what's happening here. Esther is showing the influence she had over world events by having the conviction to talk to the king. Jesus is demonstrating his sovereignty over world events by using his influence to build into his disciples. And guess what? We all know what happened, right? The apostles, they all died. Guys, they all died, and they didn't die well, right? I, 
growing up, I, you know, I had a big fear of death. I wasn't saved. I wasn't saved until I was 30 years old. And I will tell you that I, I, I was afraid. Like, I'm going to die uh, underneath like a tractor, you know, and it'll be cold, and it's going to hurt a lot. Like, death's going to involve isolation and pain and a lot of really bad things. That's just like my kid fear, right? My kid fear stretched until I was in my 20s, until I was saved, really. But these, these disciples, these apostles, they, they didn't fear that. In fact, they were so convinced by Jesus' influence that they went to wherever it was going to be. And you remember Peter's like, no, no, don't crucify me the same way as my Lord. I'm not worthy. And they, as, as tradition would say, they crucify him upside down. So the apostles, they all died. They, they didn't die for something that was just a rumor or a joke. They gave their lives because they understood the influence of Jesus was going to reshape the entire world, and they believed in that. should be up on the screen, but Augustine said that Christ is not valued at all until he is valued above all. I'm going to say that again. Christ is not valued at all unless he's valued above all. Turn your notes over to talking point number two. Talking point number two reads, what are we doing to create space for God and his plan? What are some moments in your life that you've set for God's plan for your future? And so I even wrote down, give some responses out loud. So what are some moments, some events, some emotions that the Lord has impacted you guys with that have set you for God's plan? I know my sweet sister Debbie gave me a, a neat story that was pretty cool about some of these moments about uh, Esther. What are some things that have happened with you guys? I don't want the huge stories, but let's talk about what kind of emotions have set you on a path. Compassion. Good. What else? Taking risks with the Holy Spirit. So I don't know if you hear what Sean said. Sean said, taking risks with the Holy Spirit. And it's so funny because you think about that. Is it risky? If you believe that the Holy Spirit is part of the triune God, there's no better place to be. We don't presume on his spirit. We count on his spirit, right? Uh, what about fear? Can fear be a motivator? Can doubt? Can pessimism? Can pain? Can worry? Right? Because the world loves to talk about all that. We don't talk about, right, things that are lovely, pure, right, things of, things of good repute. We don't talk about those things because that's not appealing, but that's the truth. And so these are the moments that will get you refocused on being part of God's plan for the future and being part of the bride of Christ. So turn your notes back over and let's get back in the text. If you look and see how the Lord used Esther... And you look and see how the Lord chose to use his own son, Jesus, to place the bride through the body of Christ on a victorious path. You start to see some really cool parallels. What Esther is doing from the foundation, remember, she was put in place and she knew that she was there for a time such as this. Her conviction let her speak to the king. Her influence let there be a shaping of the king's decisions. So much so that the main bad guy was appealing to Esther, not the king. Which ultimately, as part of God's plan, directly led to his death. So foundation, conviction, influence, and that leads us now to legacy. So I want you to turn to Esther 9. 
Esther 9. Think about this from the queen, the queen's point of view. I'm going to start reading in verse 24. For Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, which is why I took time to explain it to you, right? This is important. The adversary of all the Jews, in case you didn't know that history, he hates all the Jews, right? He had schemed against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure, that is the lot, to disturb them and destroy them. But when it came to the king's attention, he commanded by letter that his wicked scheme, which he devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. And just a, a quick thought about that. When you think, as a parent, that your sin is accounted for in the light of the Lord, one, you're right. You're right. But your children will also suffer. If you know what the right thing is to do and you choose not to do it, your children suffer. I don't know about you, but for my children, I don't want them to suffer. Certainly not for something I'm doing. So we need to be real about that, okay? And so he goes on in the text. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the name of Pure. And because of the instruction in this letter, the one that the king wrote, both what they had seen in this regard and what happened to them, the Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all who allied themselves with them so they would not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their appointed time annually. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated through every generation, every family, every province, and every city. And these days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews or their memory fade from their descendants. So Esther steps up and saves her people. Her legacy impact, you guys, was so great that the entire Jewish people and culture created a celebration to remember it called Purim. In fact, it, the celebration of God's undering faithfulness is so real that this has been going on, and it's only one of two feasts that the Jewish religion still holds. The other one's Hanukkah. Purim is such a big deal. It's, it's, it starts, it's between our calendar, it would be February and March, okay? This is such a big deal that the Jewish people never wanted to forget or they never wanted to impose upon the Spirit enough to say, no, no, we can do it on our own. They knew they needed an advocate. Do you know that you need your advocate? Because he died to tell you. The body of Christ, and I love where Josh went, the body of Christ for the past two decades has not embraced this role. We have not walked well into letting people know that there is someone else other than your great knowledge. I don't care what titles are before your name or what letters are behind your name. I don't care about your bank account or the type of car you drive. I care about the one who can judge not only the body, the Bible says, but the soul, right? And so what do we do about that? Well, the legacy, the legacy that we leave will carry on from generation to generation. So old or young, the decisions you make, they do carry weight. They do have consequences. God's providence and preservation for his people is one of the themes of the book of Esther. And as we look through this, you see that play out. Think of Jesus' legacy impact. Now, I, 
here at Crosstrain, we talk a lot from the Bible, as we should. Would you agree? Right? It, rarely, rarely if ever, do we have like sermon series offsets, like uh, the topic of how to, ready? How to have your best life now. I'm just kidding. We, we would never, everybody starts laughing like, did he just say that? Yes. We don't do that. In fact, we're going through Romans in this time when Pastor Doug's been away. Uh, Brian and I were talking, like, as an elder team, what do we do? We talk about God's faithfulness still. Because that's what Romans is about, God's plan of faithfulness. Look at the impact of Jesus. When you accept someone's way of thinking, even though you didn't start that way, that's the definition of influence. When I can walk into a room, and because of who Jesus is in me and through me, my words are example can change the thought of someone else to at least agree that maybe there's some merit there. As a police officer, as a supervisor in the police department, and I know my brother back there can relate to this, my brother over here can relate to this, right? We have an opportunity in the police department to tell people, do this, do this, do this, do this. And sometimes they look at you and go, okay. And as soon as you turn around, they don't do it, right? The influence comes when I tell people, if you don't do it this way, you actually could die. And if you die, I have to give that letter that I wrote to your spouse, to them, and explain to your kids what a wonderful person you were because you didn't do A, B, and C. And then the officers or detectives, they will do whatever we ask. That's influence. I want to invite the music team back up, and I want to get the people that are serving communion to start passing out the communion trays. How far did Jesus' influence spread? How far was his legacy? Well, in 2022, the Lifeway group did a survey on Jesus' legacy. Listen to this. This is about Christianity. Listen. Christianity has seen a 1.17% growth. Now it's at 2.56 billion people. By the middle of 2022, there are 2.56 billion Christians in the world. You know what it said? By 2050, it's expected to top 3.33 billion Christians in the world. This is the legacy of Jesus right here. The picture is painted all through the, the Bible in dull colors. Esther is a simple picture of this. Jesus is the vivid image of what a legacy impact coming from influence, conviction, and a foundation can really mean. But, but why does that happen? Why is there this legacy impact? Well, I'll tell you, in John 20, as you think about Jesus as the bride for the body of Christ, John 20, verses 30 and 31 reads, so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name Jesus capped his legacy statement in John 14, 6, when he says, remember what he says to Thomas? He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. God's plan has always used people to preserve his bride. And beginning with how God himself made animal coverings for Adam and Eve in the garden and carried through any number of stories, including Esther in the Bible. What we see is that he has never forgotten you. He's never lost track of you. 
God in his sovereignty is never surprised by us. His legacy is going to be that he will always redeem us if you call out to his name. In Romans it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him, Jesus, from the dead, you will be saved. It's not Jesus and. Guys, the queen and the bride are a perfect picture of why we should trust the God of the universe and his sacrifice on the cross. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time that we can have, that we can look back so that we can trust forward. We see your people in distress. We see what it was like to live a life under oppression. And we wonder, Lord, if anything's changed today. And the answer is no. Because until you come back, we still are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven. And Lord, would you let us be reminded of that? And that as a Christian author would write, if you have one foot on this world and one foot in heaven, then no matter where you stand, you lose your balance. Lord, would you let us be balanced Christians, recognizing that we are but strangers here for a time because we trust in the sovereignty and the legacy and the sacrifice of Jesus, we walk assured of our faith. And Lord, I pray for the hurt in this room, that if, if any words came out of my mouth today that would speak to that, Lord, I pray that you rise up in them this, this need to find that peace, because it can only be found through Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you again for this brief moment of time that we got to be intimate with your word. Lord, we love you and all God's people said, amen.